Acts 5.17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Really good to have you with us this morning. And if this is your first time with us, especially warm welcome to you as well. And a happy Mother's Day. Um, it's a great opportunity to be able to celebrate that as a church family. And if you are a guy who forgot to get your mom or wife flowers for Mother's Day, you're welcome. <laughs> we, um, we're going to be diving into a text in Acts 5, um, which really is on just one thing. And that is that we are called to fear God over others. And I'm going to pray that as we open up this part of the Bible, that wherever you're at, whether you are, would describe yourself as not particularly religious or even skeptical, or whether you describe yourself as a follower of Christ, that in this passage you will see God in his right proportions and size. And so I'm going to pray that, that he would do that this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you are the God of the universe, the God who created life, and the author of our lives. And Father, as we just marvel at how grand and huge this universe is and our world is, we pray that it will draw our minds to your greatness. How big, how glorious, how powerful, how indisputably great you are, that it might lead us to know you and love you as you are, and to know that your love, secured through the blood of Christ, is worth more than anything in this world. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, this morning as we kind of do reflect and honor mums and the sacrifices they make, and they do make a lot of sacrifices, often as the primary carer, it's mums who are looking after little bubs, which can be very difficult, and even at times strangely almost lonely work, that it can be really challenging and really sacrificial. But it is a time that we just remember how much of a sacrifice that is and what an amazing gift that is. We also remember this time that, that mums, I reckon there isn't a mum here or that you know 
who doesn't want their kid to grow up to be a strong, independent kid. You want your kids to have integrity. You want your kids to be able to stand on their own two feet. And you don't want your kids to spend their life trying to win others' approval, doing anything that they possibly can, changing anything about themselves just so that other people will like them. Because we know that to live like that is a kind of slavery. It's something that we want our kids to actually overcome. I remember in high school, there were two kids in my year who outwardly couldn't have looked more different and yet inwardly were driven by exactly the same thing. The first kid was a kid who was pretty quiet and studious, not particularly popular or unpopular, but a kid who just kept his head down and worked very hard. And I remember on the way home on the bus one time, he was re-examining a test paper that we'd just got back that day. And he was going back over his answers, and he was clearly anxious and trying to see maybe if he could get any extra marks. But the thing that shocked me the most was when I looked at the top of his page, in one of those red circles in the teacher's handwriting, it was written something like 87 out of 100. It was like high 80s out of 100. And I remembered saying to him, I was like, oh, you must, be, you must be devastated. And then he obviously didn't pick up on the gag. He was like, yeah, I am. He said, my dad's going to kill me. And I can't, at first I laughed because I thought he was going along with it, but then I realized he wasn't. I remember thinking, oh my God, if I got 87 out of it, my parents would have like, let me get a tattoo or something. I, if, if I got anything anywhere near that mark, I probably could have quit school for the year. But this guy, there was such a high bar that his dad had set for his performance that almost nothing was good enough. So that was one kid. But then on the other, there was a guy in our crew who was, the best way to describe him was that he was very suggestible. That is almost anything you suggested he would take up. So if things had gone a little bit quiet in the classroom and there wasn't much going on, you could be like, hey man, wouldn't it be funny if you just threw your lunch into the fan? And he's like, consider it done. <laughs> Boom, bang. And then there we go, class kicks off again. Sometimes it wasn't even that, you didn't even have to go that far. You could just pose a question. Like you could just say to him, do you reckon that kid's bag is flammable? And that's all it took. That was it. That was enough. He would run with it. But he too inwardly was driven by the constant need to impress others. And the reason, I mean, as teenage boys, we obviously didn't have the insight to pick up on what was really going on for the guys around us. But both were driven and trapped even by a fear of others. Most of their behavior was driven by someone else's approval and whether or not they would get it by how they performed. And we know that it's a trap. We know that it's a trap. And we'd love to say it's something that we grow out of in high school, but we don't. Even as full-grown adults, you might be wearing an outfit and someone makes a slight comment. Maybe they didn't even mean. And you're like, that's it, I'm done with that. Throw my cowboy hat in the trash. <laughs> that's not, I never had a cowboy hat, just in case you're wondering if that was a bit personal. But it doesn't take much. A comment about our weight, about our hairline, about what we're wearing, about our life decisions. How many of your decisions would be different if you didn't mind what people thought about you? It's a trap. And you know what the Bible calls this? There's a clear category and a name for it. It's called the fear of man. And in Proverbs 29:25, we read, The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be kept safe. Fear of others is a trap a snare, a cage, a prison, describe it however you want. We've all experienced it and we know what it is. It's the lack of freedom. 
that was written well over 2,000 years ago. And it's as true today as it was then. We fear other people. And we fear them primarily for three reasons. We fear other people because they can embarrass or humiliate us. In the workplace, at the worksite, wherever it is, there are those who have the power to embarrass or humiliate. We, we fear others because they can reject us or disapprove of us or ridicule us. And we fear others because they could physically threaten us. Those are the three reasons that we do it. Shame, approval, and, and fear of violence. And there really is in the Bible just one remedy. And it's to see God as so much bigger than people that them and their opinions and their threats are right-sized, are scaled down. And in this passage, what we're going to see is in the early church that they were so gripped by an understanding of who God is and what he is like and what he has done that even the threats of death and violence almost are like water off a duck's back. They have almost no impact on them. They so trust in Jesus that it does not move them from their mission and they continue on. And so we're going to pick up the story here in, uh, in sentence 17 of chapter 5. And the story starts, to give you some context, in, a, in an environment in Jerusalem where the church is growing and this Jesus movement is expanding. But as the movement expands, the opposition also increases. And each week we've seen it get a little bit stronger and stronger. Week on week, the opposition is rising. And here, the heat turns up just another notch. Look what happens as we pick it up in 17 uh, and 18. It says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So the high priest, who we've met before, who's already grabbed some of Jesus' disciples and warned them not to talk about Jesus and cautioned them that they should be very careful about speaking about Jesus, well, they keep speaking about him and people keep getting saved. And here, he's particularly upset. And he has them arrested and he's put them in public prison. And here we're told that the, that the high priest is a part of a group called the Sadducees. And there were kind of two major influential groups in ancient Judaism. You had the Sadducees and the Pharisees. In the Gospel of Luke, so Luke wrote the book of Acts as well. It's an eyewitness account. But in the, in the Gospel of Luke... Jesus' main fight is with the Pharisees. And the reason for that is because he's in all, all different areas and the Pharisees were kind of spread out through all the regions where Jewish people lived. And the Pharisees were really respected by the people. They were seen as, as really holy, as really devoted to God, and so people looked up to them. If you wanted to get advice on parenting or how it was that you were meant to raise your kids in the Lord, you'd ask a Pharisee. They were meant to be experts in the law. But then you had the Sadducees. And the Sadducees mainly were in just Jerusalem. And the reason for that was they worked with the Romans, which the people and the Pharisees hated. The fact that these people would work with an occupying force was kind of anathema to them. And so the Sadducees had a lot of power, but it was all centered in Jerusalem. And they were the ones who had control of the temple and the little religious police force called the Temple Guard that could arrest people. And these are the people that arrest them here. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other, hated each other. And the only reason they work together is because the only thing that kind of overcomes their hatred for each other is that they both hate Jesus. And so there's kind of an enemy's enemy is my friend thing going on here where they never normally would work with one another, but because they both want to put down this Jesus movement, they're willing to talk with each other. But here it's the Sadducees that actually arrest them. And when they do this, we're told 
that they put them in public prison. And we don't have any image of what this is actually like, but clearly it was designed to humiliate the people who were arrested. So whether it was that they were chained up outside or whether it was that people were able to walk through where it was that they were being held, whatever it was, you can tell that the aim of this is shame. And the idea is like, if you speak about Jesus and if you're a part of his people, you're going to be put to shame. And just so you know, everyone in Jerusalem is going to know it. It's designed to intimidate them and to humiliate them. But then this happens. In Acts 5, 19 to 20, we read this. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So here is clearly a miracle. They're in prison. God sends an angel to intervene and gets them out of prison and says, the next day go and keep preaching about Jesus in the temple. And not much is made of this miracle here for two reasons. The first one is this, is that the Bible doesn't seek to prove that God exists. The Bible assumes that God exists. And therefore, if God exists then miracles can happen. And this, of course, is the assumption that's at the bottom of the, of, the, of, um, of the Scriptures. Now, this also may be a reason why you find it hard to believe the Bible, and a reason why, one of the reasons why you think, look, this isn't something that's a trustworthy document. The naivety of a worldview that would just kind of unquestioningly accept that miracles and things that are clearly impossible could actually happen. But if you zoom out there really are only two ways to view the world. Either you believe that the universe is a closed system and there is nothing or no one outside of it that can act upon it, or you believe that there is a God or gods or a supernatural force that can act on the universe. And the truth is that both, both worldviews will answer some questions and raise some other ones. If you believe in a God or gods, you of course have to prove their existence and explain their apparent uh, their apparent absence and everything else. It's easy to explain the existence of the universe because obviously the God or God's created it. But similarly, if you believe the universe is a closed system, you too have some questions to answer. How can a closed system generate itself? How did the universe create itself? And how is it that purpose and morality are anything more than an illusion? See, the truth is, that thinking people know that really whatever worldview you go for, there are going to be issues and questions that are answered and ones that are raised. But here the Bible assumes that there is a God and a God who acts in his universe and can bend or overcome the laws that he created. And that's why it just kind of glosses over this miracle. That's the first reason. But there's a second reason. And the second reason that this text just kind of moves past this miracle so quickly is because it's not the biggest miracle in this passage. The biggest miracle is actually coming up. Look what happens next in the story. In Acts 5.21, we read this. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men that you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers 
went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And just before we kind of continue on to the next part of the story, just notice how cowardly the religious police are here. They were all tough and stuff the day before, arresting these guys, publicly shaming them, making sure everybody saw it, all that kind of thing. And now that they can't explain how it was that they've got out of prison, look how polite they are. They're worried that the people are going to turn against them. And so they come to the apostles and they say to them, look, a bit hat in hand, guys, would you mind just coming with us? And amazingly, the apostles don't resist. They're not afraid. They go with these guys without complaint and without fight. They don't call the people to start an uprising. They just go with them. Completely fearless. And so the story continues. In 27, we read this. And when they had brought them and had set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So now that things are back in private, the religious leaders get all big chief again, and they call out these accusations. They say, look, we told you not to teach anyone about Jesus, and instead, what have you done? It says you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. It's like all this stuff about Jesus is now everywhere. You can't turn a corner without someone talking about it. You've done the exact opposite of what we told you to do. And they say to them, and you keep telling everyone that we killed Jesus, which they did, by the way. They're just not happy that other people are being told about that. They were the ones who orchestrated it. They were the ones who had the authority and the ones who brought it about. And so Peter replies by saying, well, we've got to obey God rather than you. And to be clear, you did kill Jesus. It was your fault. But the good news is that he died for people like you. And if you trust in him, he'll forgive your sins and you can have a relationship with him forever. And the real miracle here in this passage that the passage is focusing on is the fearlessness of these apostles. Knowing that they are facing the threat of having their freedoms limited, of being arrested, of being publicly shamed, knowing that these guys killed Jesus and would be more than willing to kill them, they are undeterred and unafraid and they keep preaching Christ. They fill Jerusalem with the teachings of Jesus. They tell everyone about him. And the reason for it is they are so gripped by the gospel that they just can't be moved by the small opinions of men. See, the gospel is this. We've sinned and walked away from God. We cut ourselves off from the source of life, the one who created us and sustains us. And the penalty for cutting ourselves off from God is death. When we separate ourselves from the source of life, we face death alone. And Jesus comes, God himself, to face that penalty for us and to bring us back in a relationship with God. And God loved you that much that he would send his son to die for you and to secure his love for you. Meaning that if you have the love of God, it can never be taken from you. That this is the bedrock of your identity and how you understand yourself and the world around you. And these apostles are so gripped by this that the fact that other people don't like them or that might, might even threaten or shame or humiliate or embarrass them, it just doesn't affect them. They are so moved by the gospel. 
And this is the impact that the, the gospel has when it grips your life. There's um, a beautiful kid's story to illustrate this exact point. And you may have seen this before or you may not have. But it's a, it's a really, really brief story. And it's written by Max Licato. And it's written about a fictional world where there are a bunch of wooden beings. I don't know how you'd phrase it. Called Wemmicks. And, and they're all carved by the, the, carver, uh, the carpenter Eli. And each Wemmick has a box of golden stars and grey dots. And what they spend their days doing is they go around the village giving stars to the handsome or the pretty or the talented Wemmicks. And those who are less desirable get grey dots. And the story focuses in on one Wemmick named Punchinello. And Punchinello is not a talented Wemmick. When he tries to do something, he ends up mucking it up. And even when he mucks it up, then he says something silly. And so they give him more grey dots. And so he's, he's a Wemmick who's covered in dots. And because of that, he spends his time associating with other Wemmicks who also are covered in dots because he feels better around them. But the story shifts when he meets someone called Lucia and he notices that there's something very different about her. It's not just that she doesn't have any dots, she also doesn't have any stars. He also observes that when people see that she has no dots, they try to give her a star, but it seems to fall off every time. And he thinks to himself, that's how I want to be. So he goes and asks her, and he says, how do you do it? How do you make it so that neither dots nor stars stick to you? And she says, well, it's easy. I just go to see Eli the carpenter every day. And so he thinks on this for a while. He gathers up his courage and decides, I'm going to go and see Eli the carpenter myself. And when he gets there, he's surprised because Eli's expecting him. And Eli says to him these words. He says, I made you and you are special. And despite all the dots that you have on you, because I made you, you are no accident. You are mine. And initially, Punchinello struggles with this a little bit. He says, I'm not sure I understand. He says, how is it that Lucia manages to have none of these sort of dots or stickers stick to her? He says, well, she's already decided that what I think of her is more important than what anyone else says. See, the truth is the stickers only stick if you let them. And as he walks away, he says he's still not sure that he understands. And Eli says, you will, but it will take time. For now, come and see me every day. And let me remind you how much I care. Remember, Punchinello, you are special because I made you and I don't make mistakes. And Punchinello believes him. And as he walks out of the shed, the dots start to fall off. You get the metaphor of the story, right? That if you know the God of the universe, then other people's opinions of you, whether it's their approval or their disapproval, it just doesn't stick the same. Here in this story... The apostles are so fixated on the Lord Jesus Christ, on his, on his win and victory over sin and death, and his love upon their life, that when others threaten them, when others humiliate them, when others dislike them, when others speak ill of them, it just doesn't stick. And when others even threaten violence, it doesn't move them. And that's why this story ends in such an extraordinary manner. Look at this next part of the story, and I just want you to pay attention to two words. Just pay attention to the use of honor and of dishonor or shame. In Acts 5.33 we read, When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. This is the religious authorities. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up 
and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan of, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the dishonor for the name. It's interesting that Luke here includes an enemy and puts them in a favorable light. He says, the council that were you know, gathering together and wondering what to do, a guy called Gamaliel who had honor among the people. He was considered an honorable teacher and someone that people respected. He says, send them out. I want to talk to you guys for a minute. And he says, look, this kind of thing has happened before. And this is helpful to include, by the way. If you're of the mindset that Jesus was just kind of like an ancient entrepreneur who was the first one to sort of take advantage of the fact that people were looking for someone who claimed to be God to follow and he was just the first to capitalize on it, it wasn't the case. People did this kind of thing all the time. We've got two examples here. He says Theodos rose up. He got about 400 guys to follow him. And what? He died and then it all went to nothing. And then another one rose up, Judas of Galilee. Like this guy, he tried to get a following. And then that didn't work either. So he said, look, if these guys are not from God, don't worry. This thing's just going to fade out. It's just a phase. But if they really are from God, you might find yourself on the wrong side. You might find yourself opposing God himself. And so he says, leave them alone. And do you, do you notice here, what I love here is that they kind of listen to him and they kind of don't. They hear him and they're like, yeah, that's so wise, Gamaliel. Yeah, we shouldn't. But just in case, we'll, just, we'll beat them up just a little bit on the way out just to sort of cover all the bases. And Luke here kind of glosses over that. It just says, and they beat them. Now, that, that's not like a slap on the wrist. That, uh, the, the, the punishment here would have been a flogging across the chest and the back. And these would have left life-threatening injuries. So this is not, this is not some kind of small, you know, uh, just slap on the wrist kind of beating. Now, this was serious. But then what happens? They walk away having received this beating, which again is meant to be a public humiliation. And what do they say? They rejoice because they were counted worthy, almost honorable, to receive dishonor for the name of Jesus. That's the miracle of miracles in this passage. Jesus who can turn water into wine, Jesus who can turn death into life, can turn dishonor into honor. And we know this concept. We know that it, you know, at school, you can, if you have an identity as a naughty kid, it can be the case that criticism from a teacher can kind of be like praise because it increases your credibility. It's like a counter-identity. In fact, kryptonite for a naughty kid is as a teacher to praise them and pretend like they're a really good kid. That's how you really want, if you want to cut them off at the knees, that's how you do it. But this is not what's happening here. 
It's not that the apostles are like, yeah, like we didn't care about criticism from those guys. No one likes them anyway. No, they're still, they're still appealing to these people who are beating them and threatening them to turn their lives to Christ. They love them. They're appealing to them. But they just aren't moved by them. And they won't be shaken from their mission by them. Because as Peter said, look, what are we going to do? Are we going to obey people or are we going to obey God? The choice is kind of easy for us, guys. We're going to have to go with God on this one. And you guys do what you do. They are so gripped by the gospel that they're not shaken by the threats of people. And I wonder if you're someone here who's skeptical or just unsure about where you stand on these things and particularly with Jesus, what would your life look like if you cared this little about what people thought about you? How much would it change your life for others' approval and their disapproval to not stick so much. You know what I've considered for celebrities, particularly who are on social media, is that nothing about it can be any good from No one needs either that much praise or that much criticism. No single human is meant to thrive with either that much praise or that much criticism. They don't deserve to be criticized into the ground like they are, but similarly, they don't deserve the adulation that they get. The truth is we don't thrive when people either pour out that much praise on us or that much criticism. And I think it speaks to the fact that we were made for an identity that goes beyond just what we can find or, or experience in this life. That the approval of people, even if we get it, is never enough anyway. What would it look like to not be completely devastated by criticism and not completely addicted to others' approval? promise in this passage is that you can find it in the gospel. And if you're someone here who's been thinking about investigating Christianity already, maybe this is God reaching out to you to say now's the time to investigate it more deeply. Not based on what other people have said or second-hand opinions or whatever else, but to find out for yourself whether or not these claims are true and as life-changing as they say they are in Scripture here. And if you wanted to do that, we'd love to help you with that. Obviously, we have Alpha coming up, which is a great chance to explore things. But if you even just wanted to put on that white card, yeah, I just want to know a bit more about this stuff, it would be our joy to help you with that. But if you're here and a follower of Christ, your call is to right-size God so that you will right-size people and their opinions as well. The apostles here lived with a clear understanding of who their God was and it brought everything else in life into right proportion as well. Even even the threat of death. When you're in the city, it is, it is hard to get a, a proper glimpse of the stars. Two weeks ago, my boys, our sons, came up with the idea of camping in the backyard, which I thought, how badly could that go? <laughs> it went very badly. <laughs> we started the night at sort of like 9 o'clock. We went out there. We'd been camping the week before, so we thought everything should be fine. And so the idea was, we'll camp in the backyard, with the windows up because it was a clear night. So you'd actually get a look at, the, um, at both stars in the Sydney sky. And, um, and so doing that seemed like a really, that sounds really like, I don't know, kind of cool and a bit edgy and whatever. And so we're like, that's, that's a great idea. So we went out there, they took their dinners and all of that. The first hiccup was about, I don't know, two hours in, about 11 o'clock, I woke up, my air mattress had deflated. Classic, right? $8.50 from Kmart, you get what you pay for, I can't be mad about that. <laughs> I went in, we've got about 30 of them, so I just went in, got another one, brought it out. Then around like 1 o'clock, 
the boys are kind of going for a lot of toilet breaks, which in a tent is like, like the rustling and everything just wakes everyone up. They're like, oh, do you really need to anyway? And so and then around 4 a.m., one of them was cold, so I went inside to get a sleeping bag. Should have thought of that in the first place anyway. Sorted that one out, went back to sleep. Then the other one woke up, wanted half my doona. I'm like, ah. Oh. And you know when you're so tired, they're like, even though the easiest thing would just be to go and get something, you just don't. So you just share the doona and then I'm half cold and whatever else. And then around 4 o'clock, everyone was awake. And I was like, all right, that's it for tonight, fellas. We're all going into bed and we're done. And then everyone slept it off for the rest of the morning in their own actual beds. But the heart behind it was, <laughs> the heart behind it was, because it was finally a clear night, we wanted to get a glimpse of the stars. But the truth is, you kind of forget, until you go out to the country, you, like when you see the stars in the, in the Sydney sky, you think like, yeah, there's actually a lot up there. But it's not until you go outside Sydney where you're like, oh my gosh, it's incredible. I can't believe how little I can actually see when I'm in the city. And even when you do it, like before you go out, you're like, no, it can't be that much of a difference. I must be building it up in my head. But as soon as you get there, you're like, oh my gosh, it's unbelievable. I think sadly it's the case that many who follow Christ live with a diminished view of his glory. We are so distracted by the busyness of city lives and whatever else takes up our time and our focus and attention that we just forget the majesty of a God who created the universe just by speaking. And unless we daily open his word, commune with him in prayer, contemplate his greatness, then of course other people's opinions are going to seem like the most important thing in the universe. That what someone who I don't even particularly know thinks about me might rock my day completely, even though the love of Christ, the God of the universe, has been secured for me forever. We're called to live with God in right proportion to his creation. We're called to overcome the fear of man with the right-sizing fear of God. May we be a people who understand his goodness and his greatness to us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just repent of the fact that too often we think of you in too smaller terms. That we forget that you are the God of the universe. That you are the God who spoke creation into being who knows us, who made us, and who made a way back to you through Jesus, through his death and his resurrection. That you are the one in whom we have eternal life secured. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us daily to sit under your word and to understand your majesty and your goodness, that we might be people who live for you and not for the approval of others. That we, like your apostles, your disciples here in the book of Acts, would trust you and would follow you and not be moved by whether to say or threaten. And Father, we pray that we would do this for the glory of your name. Amen.